The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Stop recursing through your CTEs and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 110 with guest Kimberly Tripp, recorded live Friday, April 22nd, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for ASPNet development, online at www.telerik.com. And by DevTeach, a new breed of developers conference done by developers for developers, June 18th through the 22nd in beautiful Montreal, Canada, online at www.devteach.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's already hired a post-show medical team to stuff his brains back in his ear, Carl Franklin! Thank you, thank you, welcome to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. In New London, Connecticut this evening, I'm your host, Carl Franklin, hoping you're going to have a good week this week, and do all those .NET geeky things that you like to do, and we like to do them right along with you. And uh, right now, I'd like to introduce my co-host, my partner in crime out there in Vancouver, British Columbia, Mr. Richard Campbell. How are you, sir? Here I am, living large. Been a weird, weird week. What's been weird about it? I have been working with a team of guys for the past few months developing a new piece of technology that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. And so we've been talking to patent attorneys, setting up a patent for our new gizmo. Ah, the new gizmo that shall not be named. That cannot be named at this point. That's true. It won't be named yet. But once the patent's in place, I'll talk about it, I promise. Well, uh, what else has been happening up in Canada this week? Well, um, there's been some news. I, I got an I got an email from your friend of mine, Rob Windsor, yeah, who said that uh, the Toronto Users Group won the uh, the the contest. Now, what was the name of that? There it is. The Inner User Group competition that Microsoft Canada put on, yeah, uh, was a challenge to write software basically for the members inside the user group. And uh, the guys at the Toronto User Group actually won it with a very cool product called Pocket Builder. And I don't really understand everything the thing had done, but uh, my friend uh, Julie Lerman, too, hmm. uh, saw the presentation, was completely blown away with what they did. Anyway, they cleaned up all kinds of goodies. They got a spot watch and some pocket PC gear and 
there's a, a, a meal coming at some kind of barbecue they're going to do in June. So uh, congratulations to all you guys and uh, props to uh, Rob Windsor. Nicely yeah. done. Yeah. Give up some props for Rob. He's been a huge fan of .NET Rocks, too, all through the years. And I got some more fan mail this week. Uh, this one, uh, we got, you know, as, as the listeners know, we get lots of mail, and every once in a while we pick out one that we like. Either that or one that has a message that we want to particularly beat into the public, the listening public. <laughs> and uh, this, is good to, this is good to read. Uh, it reinforces what we already think about how we're doing, but I wanted to read it anyway. Hi, Carl and Richard. Just wanted to drop a note and let you know that the show seems to be as strong as ever. I kind of gave it a break somewhere during the, quote, grossly obscene days, end quote, and the switch to the new format. Recently, I went back and started to listen to some of the shows that were recorded over the past couple of months and have found them a delight. Getz, Lotka, Vaughn, Hanselman, Sheriff, great stuff. Richard, you are doing great. Your technical commentary is insightful and practical. Plus, your humor and authentic style pleasantly keep things flowing. See you at TechEd. Are you going to do any early BOF like the one with Bob Russman in San Diego? Keep up the good work, guys. Robert Cantwell, Santa Fe, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Well, Robert, uh, not only are we going to be at TechEd, but we're going to do a .NET Rocks at TechEd, aren't we, Richard? We're shooting a whole show there, uh was it on the Wednesday, the 8th, lunchtime? That's right. During lunch, we're going to be talking to the VSTS team, the team system team. That's right. It's going to be fabulous. And it's, be, going to, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a big group of people, too. So I hope you guys will all be out there uh, can watch us record a show and uh, look at the upper parts of our heads because the lower parts are hidden behind microphones. Exactly. And we will be there on time. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> and uh, some other things making the news this week. Uh, refactor support in VB 2005 provided Woo-hoo! by DevExpress was announced this week on Thursday. You can read all about it at Microsoft, uh, and I give you a Shrinkster link because it's a long URL. Go to shrinkster.com slash 4V7. That's 4Vitamin7. And if you go there, you'll see uh, just a, a quick note about how the refactoring works, and there's a little bit of a video there by uh, the guys at DevExpress, a very short video. And Mark Miller and I did a few short screen videos, a little bit longer though, a couple of 10-minute videos, to show off the refactor support. We uh, pitched this to Microsoft to see if they would use it, but I guess it was a little too long for whatever reason, no big deal. But uh, we did get permission to put them up. So if you want to watch those, and these are, these are really more in-depth, they really show you what, uh, what you can do with the refactoring support in VB 2005, go to shrinkster.com slash 4v9. For vitamin nine, and that is a link to my blog where you'll see that post with the links to the flash videos. And, and I've uh, watched these videos now, and they they're really great. It, they, they, there are very few products in this world that do stuff you really like that are totally unexpected. Like when you see the parameter list change with yeah, Refactor, yeah, you start swearing. Yeah, like I jumped out of my seat. I couldn't believe what I'd just seen. Yeah, my initial reaction was holy. You know, but I didn't yeah. say that. I just can't believe it. So it's very cool. And uh, but there are still those among us who really think that VB is crap and C sharp is where it's at. And these people will go to any lengths and use any kind of uh, reasoning and rationale necessary to bang the drum for C sharp and try to get all the VB programmers to believe that it's crap. 
the VBA is crap. And I'm talking, of course, about this article that was written at uh, Code Project, shrinkster.com slash 4V6, for vitamin 6, called Not Another C-Sharp versus VB article by Nigel Shaw, in which he tries to make some very scientific, uh, uh, you know, uh, very rational kind of arguments why people should switch from VB to C-Sharp. Including in his rational arguments are statements like 80% of C-sharp programmers are good, while 80% of VB programmers are not good. And that's just <laughs> the kind of, you know, the scientific fact that he quotes. Uh, based on that, therefore, he goes on to say that if an organization is content to write average quality software and has average VB developers, there may be no benefit in switching to C-sharp. So if you want to write average quality stuff, you, you just stay with VB. Um, but if you have an exceptional VB team, you should switch to C-sharp. The exceptional VB team will have no problem learning the new syntax, so there is no danger. The team will then <laughs> reap the benefits of the C-sharp syntax, semantics, and culture for years to come. Okay, well, you know, um, you know, it sounds great, but why would we have to reap the benefits of C Sharp when we have the syntax of VB that does great? Thank you very much. And to Mr. Nigel Shaw, I say, nice try, but your science is flawed. Well, I'm not even going to bother to read Kimberly Tripp's bio because it reads like a, a huge tome of achievements. Um, needless to say, she was the number one speaker at TechEd last year, or was it the year before? I can't remember. But she's she constantly has number one rated talks uh, on SQL Server and data-related issues. And will you please welcome uh, your friend and mine, Kimberly Tripp. How are you, Kim? I'm very well, Carl. Thank you. A.K.A. Gadget Girl. A.K.A. Gadget Girl. That's correct. We've got Gadget Girl. We've got the Toy Boy. Here we are. I'm actually somewhat nervous. <laughs> well, uh, Kim, no, you have nothing to be nervous about. Because um, if you recall the last time you were on, um, I think you pretty much left me and Rory in the dust. But we tried to keep up with you as best we could. But, man, it, that it was hurt. Fun. We had a good time. We had a good time. I, we do. I, uh, I get rambling on index internals and, and the next thing you know. And I got to tell you something. That was one of the most popular yeah. shows we ever did. People, it was fun. I I get a lot of emails asking me, when are you going to be on .NET Rocks again? Right. So, uh, here I am. And we get a lot of emails asking us when you're going to be on .NET Rocks again. <laughs> That's right. So what the heck you been doing? You know, I, I, I always feel guilty when I start looking at the, the lack of blog entries that I have and, and the fact that <laughs> I'm always working, and yet I, I never seem to get myself over to kind of writing another blog entry, and I, I know I really should. Um, I have been... Just deeply immersed in SQL Server 2005 and yeah. just testing the heck out of it. And I've been working with Microsoft on some new resources, and I've been working with Microsoft on some training courses and, and also, you know, just doing feature testing even, just uh, pounding on a feature and giving feedback and, you know, directly working with people on the team. And it's just, it's been a blast. I mean, I, I, uh, I've learned so much, and I, I, I'm kind of trying to, to get out of it, you know, kind of get my head out of it, but um, yeah. it's just so much fun. I mean, I, I've been having a blast, you, you know, I, I, I have to bring it up because um, <laughs> I'm sure Richard would, I, 
you know, I've, I've had some of the best times doing some of the geekiest testing I've done with a product, making up demos that are just bizarre. And, and, <laughs> and I know, Richard, you're already laughing. And I don't want to just keep rambling here. But the, do I, I mean, as we talked about this last year in Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, totally. And this, this concept of how to, how to just do a completely geeky demonstration of what is really quite dry IT stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of, that's what I love doing, you know, is trying to come up with a way to convey something that makes it interesting, but realistic, sure. technical, but, but again, fun. And you know? very, very cool. And, and this is, yeah, this, I, I'm actually, I'm doing this demo three or four times over the next couple of, of weeks. And, um, one of the, the things that I, I, I've been focusing a lot on for SQL 2005 is a new feature called partitioning, right? So, so again, Carl, just stop me if I keep Sure. Rambling. No, no, like, let's hear about it. But, um, you know, in SQL 2005, one of the, the main focuses that they have in general on the product is, is obviously scalability, but also availability, right? So yeah. they want people that have larger databases, more complex environments, to be able to keep their servers up and running and available without any downtime, downtime from maintenance, downtime from, you know, power failure, hardware failure. And there's just a, a huge number of features that, that are focused on this. And, and there's a concept that reigns through so many features called partitioning. And the idea is that you take large objects like tables that are, are very hard to manage as a large, ob large object, and you break those objects down into smaller, more manageable chunks. And one of the, the really strong benefits of partitioning is not necessarily performance, although there are just some tremendous performance gains with respect to certain types of operations, like uh, the sliding window, and I, I can talk about that as well. But mm -hmm. one of the coolest features is an availability feature, which basically says that you can take a large table, let's say sales, and a lot of people tend to push that sales off or their sales off to a secondary server to do their reporting and so forth. They don't want to kind of mix and match their OLTP and their decision support. Mm -hmm. So they end up with two databases, partially because they don't want to have a really large database. Because if you think about it in SQL 2000, if you have a really large database and part of that database becomes damaged, then the whole database goes offline, right? Like if you have even one, um, one page that's damaged in a database in, in SQL 2000 or a file that's damaged, SQL Server will detect that that's files that that file is damaged and make that database suspect. Mm. Well, in SQL 2005, if a file that is not a primary file, and I'll define what that means in a moment, but if a file that's not a primary file becomes damaged, if it's just a secondary data file, the database and even the table, if it's a partition table or otherwise, will still stay available, right? That's cool. No, I don't need to breathe. Somebody yeah. says, doesn't she have to breathe? No, I never breathe. <laughs> now, didn't they get going on topics like this? Now, Kim, no. Kim, didn't they have uh, part? Don't they have partitions in in uh, SQL 2000? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th this is good, and I can also tie this into the question that somebody mentioned about: Is this like a federated server? Okay. Feder so let me just clarify that for a second. Federated servers, or a federation of servers, or a cluster federation. There's all sorts of terms uh, associated with federated servers. Is usually what we call a scale out scenario. Right. And a scale-out scenario involves multiple servers, and this is not supported across multiple servers. So I really want to make that clear. There is a feature called distributed partitioned views. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, and that is 
still in SQL 2005, and it's in 2000, and you can still do partition views. Partition views take advantage of these new features as well, but there's a new feature called partition tables that is actually a single table that mm. uses something called a partition function mm. to logically define the boundaries, and then the function works with something called a partition scheme, and the scheme maps those boundaries to physical locations, meaning okay. files. Sure. Well, actually, it's file groups, but file groups of the database. And file groups map to one or more files, and obviously the files are at the physical level, right? Right. Hard to... So get this. Imagine having this like really large table, a table that's, let's say, a billion rows. If you ever have to do an index rebuild on a table that has a billion rows, it's, it's painful. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's not even something you want to even, even do in most cases. I mean, it's a very, very long amount of time. I mean, hours, possibly, you know, day and a half type of thing. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people would break that down into smaller chunks, but the beauty of breaking it down into smaller chunks is that you can also have different types of data in that really large table have different types of behavior. Like new sales, we're in April 2005, right? So new sales are coming in for April, but you've got past sales for March, past sales for February, past sales for January, and so forth. Indexes on the January part of the table aren't changing. Therefore, they're not becoming fragmented. Therefore, mm. they don't need to be rebuilt, mm. right? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. I get it. Well, and it's this recognition that there's a significant amount of data inside of databases that's journaled. It's inserted into the tables, and it's never modified again. It's only ever read from. Yeah. So once you've got it, put it away somewhere where it's not part of the live database. That makes so oh, much but, sense. But no, but what I'm saying is the beauty of partition tables is you can leave it as part of the live database, and if for some reason the file or file group that it lives on becomes physically damaged... Instead of taking the database offline, which is what it did in 2000, it only takes that file group offline so that, like, let's say you have data all the way back to 2000. If 2000 becomes damaged, you don't negatively impact 2001, 2002, 2003, and so forth. So what they've got is this concept of partial database availability. And I have just been pounding on this. And, mm. and that's one of the features. Okay, so, so now that I've kind of described it, I wanted to, to have a way to bring this to conferences to, to show people how cool this feature is. Mm. So in geeking out with Richard last year in Kuala Lumpur, we started talking about how we could show, you know, multiple disks. And, and one of the ideas that I've always wanted to do, uh, which is somewhat related, which is get a USB hub with four USB keys and create like a RAID 10 RAID array. Oh, yeah. RAID. <laughs> Kim, you showed me this in the speakers' lounge at uh, at uh, yeah. Dev Connections. Yeah, this yeah, is amazing. So I, I ended up doing this for partitioning, where I take four USB keys in a USB hub, and I, I don't put them into a RAID array. That's actually a whole other story. But I literally create them as drives E, F, G, and H, <laughs> and I put June's data on E, July's data on uh, F, August's data on G, and uh, September's data on H. And then I basically show this partition table and I access it. And, you know, the little USB key lights are all flickering yeah. away. Cool. <laughs> trying to handle my request. I, I put literally millions of rows across these, right? Um, so there's, there's a whole bunch of data. And then I literally pull one of the USB keys out. And the database stays available. 
In fact, even the data that's been read into cash will, will stay available. Wow. Yeah, so there's some cool things. and then- So it doesn't try and rot the cash because it's lost the back-end store. You know what, though? No. I guarantee this wouldn't work on my laptop. <laughs> you pull any kind of USB anything out of my laptop and it goes, whoa. It's like Jim from Taxi. Oh, dude. dude. I think USB is like one of the coolest things. I, I have so many USB gadgets and, and I just, I can't tell you, I've got like three USB hubs I travel with and I'll have sometimes like 10 USB devices hanging off my laptop. <laughs> I, I think USB 2 is the key here. Um, I, I have an old laptop that I'm replacing, by the way, with the fastest laptop known to man. And uh, it, it's got a USB 1 hub. Yeah, those you know, are painful. And they, that's what I'm talking about. Uh. Yeah, well, you know, it is, USB 2.0 is definitely cool. I, I appreciate the speed of that you know, a lot. Yep. I tend to use a FireWire drive if I only have USB 1.0 or yep. 1.1. But... Um, you know, I I do I, I do love it. I mean, it's just so flexible. I don't even have a serial port on my laptop now, which just cracks me up. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there isn't even a serial port. Why bother? It has, yeah, why bother? I have three USB ports on my laptop, and uh, I'm I'm just loving it. it. It's you're able to show so many devices and show you know show <laughs> especially in SQL 2000 this this availability case so easily, and uh, it's really quite quite a bit of fun. I get interesting. Oh my God, you are such a geek reactions to my demo, but everybody gets it, and I, and that's what I really love. I th- that, which, which was actually the goal, was to, you know... The goal, that is the goal. I have done the demonstration with customers where we've literally pe- yanked the power cords out of the wall on a database server to show it recovering itself. Yeah, totally, restart recovery. There's just no substitute for that. Yeah, that server has no problem. That's fantastic. I, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, it really only took you like five minutes to set it up, too. Yeah, it sometimes takes longer to partition the database over the USB keys than it does to set everything up. But um, it, it's cool. I, I so I, I've been having fun with features like that, and I'm I'm able to really, you know, pound on the product with with some of these things. Um, and I do have larger hardware that I that I pound on as well occasionally, and, and servers that I work with at Microsoft. But you know, it's just it's 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 fun. It's fun, and I'm still having fun, and I can't believe I'm still having fun. You know, since I've been doing this for 15 years, which is what's really scary to me. I, you know, I started when I was 12, right? So, <laughs> really fun, it, you know. So, uh. Here, Kimberly, happy birthday. For your 12th birthday, we're going to take you to Disney World. Oh, Mom, can't I have a laptop? Yeah, please. Can't I have a SQL server? I just want a raid array. <laughs> Come on. I want OS2 and land manager. <laughs> How about a nice piece of birthday cake? <laughs> oh. So anyway, well, I, so you want me to keep rambling or what do you well, want? Well, actually, I, I, I do. But unfortunately, we've got a few questions in the queue here. And I want to get these out of the way. Okay. Um, well, that sounded bad. I don't want to get them out of the way. I want to ask them. Uh, uh, Matt Trevers from Pittsburgh, who is often in the chat room, says, what do you think will be the most misused feature? Of SQL 2005. <laughs> so people are sending questions somewhere else, aren't they? I'm looking. Yeah, at no, I've, I, I'm the field, the question fielder, so that you don't have to uh, multitask. Oh, right. Yeah. On. Okay. Um, so, what do I think the most misused feature is going to be? Um, well, I have mixed feelings, but I, I, I would have to say that it's, it's probably going to be a combination of 
um, the SQL CLR, yeah. and um, possibly even XML. And it's it's not that the XML features are what's going to make people overuse it or use it inappropriately, but just the misconception that everything should be XML that I think is part of the problem. And, and a lot of people put things in that structure when maybe that's not the best choice. Um, well, I buy into the idea of storing XML if that's what you're getting, but generating XML in order to store it in the database sounds insane to me. To me, too. Uh, or, you know, depending on how you're using it, um, you know, shredding it and making it relational is kind of a one-time thing that can pay off in a lot more efficient index structures and so forth, as opposed to keeping something as XML just for the sheer fact of not having to shred it. Yeah. If, if it is relational, it makes sense as relational. If it's, if it's got a lot of semi-structured data, a lot of empty values that don't really make sense, there are some cool ways to, to kind of turn that into row sets that have different types of values, like, you know, name value pair types of combinations and tables that have all of those values as row sets. And, and there's just some cool things you can do that I just, I think people maybe don't know about the other features and they rely on the ones they do know. I mean, the two you've just pointed out, the CLR and XML, touch me in the sense that these are you, this is a situation where you get in with developers needing to store data and not necessarily understanding how the database can do that for them well. Right. And so they tend to go with what they know. They don't appreciate, like, a, you know, voice code normalization, doing that sort of a attribute value structure doesn't ring anything to a developer. You draw it for them, you explain it to them, they look at you and go, why would you do that? It's because this is incredibly flexible and efficient. That's why. Yeah. That's not something that they can relate to. I think, and I may be just repeating what you said, Richard, but um, the, that a lot of times people will put the data into XML because that is why, that's how they're going to pull it out. And they think that the way they're, they're going to pull it out today, you know, as XML is the only way that they're ever going to access that data. Uh, you know, or, or you know, I, I see this, I see both. I see people who make, uh, you know, totally distributed uh, in relational databases and then they also have some tables that have these blobs of XML in it for another purpose, usually for a read kind of bind web service, whatever it is. Well, that can be a really logical way to do it, though. I, I, I'm much more prone to having mixed uses of data rather right. than all of one or all of the other. And, yeah. and I, I, you know, you know the, the, the phrase that's usually used negatively, jack of all trades, master of none? Right. You know, I... The way I look at SQL 2005 is everybody, developers, DBAs, everyone needs to be jack-of-all-trades, master of some. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. That's like my new phrase because I, I don't think that it's going to be possible for, for everyone to know everything. I mean, I, I've been working with this product for 15 years, and there's, there's features that I feel like I, I, I've barely even skimmed the surface of in Yukon. And that's kind of, you know, it's daunting to a certain extent. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make sure that I know enough about everything so that I know at least what the best practices are. I know why I might want to use a particular feature and when it doesn't make sense to use a particular feature. And then I might try to work with someone who can, who can really go deep in that feature that, again, doesn't know everything but knows enough about that feature to then implement it correctly. 
Let me get back to the uh, partition feature with a question from Wayne Authorton from West Lafayette, Indiana. And he says, what happens to the logs when you partition that data? Can you partition the logs as well? That's an interesting question. I'm not totally sure I understand why the question is, but I can answer it. I I just love to know where you're going with it because there might be more to this. So if, if you can pop in some more details, that'd be cool. But okay. a transaction log is always on a database-by-database database basis. A transaction log has, has virtually nothing to do with the data structures in the database except as they change, obviously, they're logged. So having a table which is partitioned versus having a table which is not partitioned does not really in any way, shape, or form impact or change the log. And you wouldn't necessarily want to sp- split the log up onto different uh, – I think that's what he's asking – you don't, you don't ah, okay. want to split so, the log up onto different machines. Okay, so maybe that's a, a good question. It definitely cannot go across multiple machines. A transaction log is always on one or more what are called LDF or log files, and you can have more than one, but to be really honest, in terms of performance, in terms of availability, and in terms of you know, kind of accessing the database and keeping it available, you should actually have only one transaction log. Right. If you, if you find that you're disk bound, if the transaction log is, is very heavily hit, one of the best ways to improve performance for the transaction log is to not have another log file, but to have the log placed on isolated disks so that there's nothing else contending for those resources, and then make sure that the disk that it's on is as fast as possible, preferably using not just RAID 1, but maybe RAID 1 plus 0, mm. so that you add striping to mirroring to give the speed as well as the redundancy. Yeah. And then you get elevator seeking. is actually more than one spot it can grab the same piece of data. Yeah. That's a good yeah, point. Yeah, but for the log, it's mostly in a write. Um, yeah, it's all sequential anyway. That's why there's really no point in having more than one file. You're always, the hot spot's always roughly in the same place. Yeah, and they, they, they will always use the log files serially. So, yeah. And actually, that reminds me that I said something that I didn't finish up. Um, okay. Database availability in 2005, the, the database staying available, I said that it's only when an, a, a secondary data file becomes damaged and that primary uh, files, if they become damaged, the database will be taken offline. The primary files of a database, really, in SQL 2005 would be the log and the MDF. Now, the MDF is technically called the primary portion of the database, but the way that I'm kind of looking at it is, what do I need to always make sure is available in a database to keep the database available? And that's the first data file, the MDF, and the log. And they always need to be available. If either of those becomes damaged, the database is taken offline. So it's only the secondary, non-primary data files that... um, you know, when they're impacted, the database isn't taken offline. Here's another question from Denny in St. Peter, Florida, St. Petersburg, that is, with, uh, regarding SQL 2005 and the whole T-SQL versus CLR. Seems like a good thing, SQL CLR, that will be very misused and needs good guidelines. Just wondering if you know if Microsoft has any plans to do a PAG set, which is a uh, patterns and practices uh, application block or any kind of reference architecture on this. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar. I, I should make sure, maybe associated with this webcast, I give you guys a, or this um, this broadcast. This I, is a podcast, Kim. Sorry, podcast. I know. I, <laughs> as geeky as I am, I don't know all these downloading. It's a Kimcast. Things you know. It's um, a Kimcast. So in addition to this Kimcast podcast, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the 
there are some really cool resources, specifically with regard to the SQL CLR. There's already, and I'm even flipping through this while I'm talking to you, there's a, a white paper called Hosting the .NET Runtime in Microsoft SQL Server, and it's a, um, there's a myriad of authors associated with it, and it's really good. There is a white paper on uh, using the SQL CLR in SQL Server, so it's called Using SQL are using CLR integration in SQL Server, um, and there's there's basically three or four white papers and resources that are already out there on MSDN or otherwise, okay. um, but mostly on MSDN, and they're okay. really trying, and, and I've been working with the SQL team actually on this, trying to come up with best practices, types of papers and or resources and or webcasts yeah. to try to convey, you know, like you're asking, best uses, best practices, you know, design issues, architectural issues, and so forth. So you'd be amazed. There's already something like 25, 30 webcasts. Wow. We started those in December, and each one is, you know, anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half long. They're all done by the dev team. So Great. there's already a ton of webcasts. They just started a whole blast of new ones in April. So if, gonna, if, if, they, if you find any more of them, are you going to put them on your blog or on your website? You know what I can do? I can do that. Um, the only problem is I'm flying out tomorrow morning for three weeks, and I'm in four countries, and it's craziness. I don't know if I'll get to it today, um, and then I won't be online for a few Well, that's days. okay. I mean, just going forward, it would be nice to have a place yeah, yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's, that's a great, great idea. I'll create a blog entry. that I do have two or three blog entries of webcast links, but you're right. Maybe bringing everything together in one okay. place would be really cool. So, all right, I've got homework now. Okay, so I have another question from our old friend Brian Kuhn from the Kennewick School District in Richland, Washington. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. How are you? He says, I would like to see a good technical article and or blog post on how to serialize a custom class to XML and then pass it to a stored procedure as an XML data type that is then shredded into the appropriate database tables using the new query and value functions that are available to query XML data inside the database. The documentation is still somewhat lacking in books online, so it would be nice to see some examples that solve this real business that solve real business problems by leveraging the new native XML data type. You know, most of the issue around that is got nothing to do with SQL Server. It's got to do with understanding the serialization of a class. Yeah, I think he's also talking about some new features in, with the XML data type itself inside inside SQL. And as much as I said that I am trying to become a jack-of-all-trades, master of some, that's one of the, the ones that I am not a master Congratulations, of. Congratulations, Brian. You have stumped the chick. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I would never have claimed that one. Don't worry. But, um, you know, there, there's, there are some news groups and so forth that are out there. I don't know if they're helping. I know the books online um, are okay. always a little bit behind the product, um, and that's just it, it has to happen because the product is still changing, and when they, they release the product, you know, the books online are sometimes a little bit behind. So I know they're working really hard to put a lot more resources there. I know there are at least two or three uh, white papers on XML already on MSDN. So if you haven't looked at those resources, you should at least check those out. And, um, and then I would probably say if you're on the beta for UConn, uh, get into the beta news groups. And at least bring up the point there because the dev team does watch the beta news groups and 
they have been really good at getting back to people and letting them know of a resource if one already exists. And, and some mm. of your suggestions okay. on what could go into the books online may still have a, a chance to make it into the books online or into the resource kit. Because there is going to be a resource kit that ships for SQL Server shortly post-RTM that's going to be filled with all sorts of additional you know, resources like maybe what you're asking. Okay. But, but that, would be a bit, that would be way over my head. I apologize. Okay. Steven asks, does 2005 T-SQL allow reusing a derived column later in the same T-SQL statement? SQL allow you to reuse a derived column later. So I think what they really mean, because I don't really know the term derived column per se, but I think what they mean is they want to have a SQL statement that has some type of expression that they maybe create an alias for and then reuse that alias later in the expression. And the only way you can do that is with something called a common table expression but that's really more a tabular set that you reference multiple times in the same query. So my guess really is that the answer is no, but I, I, I probably would need more info to really understand what you're, you're asking. Okay. But I think I've got it. I, I mean, I think, I think the answer is no. But Okay, and Stephen, just uh, send us another question if you need clarification there. Brian Morehouse from Cyber asks, I see and hear about a lot of websites that seem to have problems starting at 500 connections. Oh, is that your experience? Am I missing a guideline? Um, it could be a thread issue, like a worker thread issue. Um, I don't know of a problem that's directly related to something that happens at 500 connections. The only thing that I could make an uh, assumption on, and, and we all know what happens when I assume, but... Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I can make an, assump- uh, an assumption on is that maybe it's a, a hardware issue or a configuration issue. Um, I okay. Maybe wasn't well tested. I, hard to say. I. Yeah, and that's kind of a tough question it too. Is I mean, tough. He's talking about 500 connections to a website that may or may not be. It might be a middle tier issue. Yeah, it might be a middle tier issue. Might be a pool issue. Yeah, it could. You don't know if they're actually all sustaining connections or not. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen in in that 500. Okay, Matt Trevers from CEI in Pittsburgh says, has Microsoft made any advancements in distributed query processing? From what I understand, distributed union queries are currently executed in sequence. Are they executed in parallel in 2005? They've been um, executing statements in parallel for a couple of different versions. Yes, since 6.5. Yeah, I mean, there have been forms of parallelism in, in multiple versions of SQL Server, and even... Even on single CPU uh, machines, having parallel threads doing, um, you know, like read-ahead helping to read data for a query has, has been in there since, I mean, I can't even, at least six, so if not earlier than that. So um, distributed queries, though, kind of makes me a little bit nervous if they actually mean distributed across two servers or two, you know, different SQL servers. But mm. um, no advances in the area of having a, a query kind of, I hate to use the, the, the term partition, but taking a query and sending it over to another server to do processing. Um, the processing is always on the SQL server that it occurs on. But you can have you know, queries that use linked servers where you send a request to a server to get data, bring that data back, and then 
joined to it or whatever. Yeah. So it might have been distributed transactions he was talking about as well, which is a different cat altogether. Yeah. Again. So. All right. So we'll get a little more clarification from from him too. We're going to take a quick break and pay the bills. But uh, in the, when we come back, I want to ask you about uh, to talk a little bit about T-SQL enhancements. Maybe give a list of some of your favorites. And uh, stick around. We'll be right back. I have some fresh news for you. Telerik has announced the Q2 release of their RAD control suite. The product represents a comprehensive collection of 11 best-of-breed ASP Net components, which allow professionals to build web solutions with the UI richness and responsiveness of desktop applications. Version Q2 2005 includes two new products, an innovative data grid control called RAD Grid and a combo drop-down component called RAD Combo Box. The RAD Grid control, which is currently featured on www.asp.net, is extremely fast and generates very little output. It offers true cross-browser support, rich client-side functionality, and a number of unique features. RAD Combo Box will pleasantly surprise you with asynchronous callbacks, autocomplete, sorting, validation, overlaying, skinning, and so on. RAD Controls Q2 2005 also includes the long-awaited version 5.0 of the leading WYSIWYG editor for ASP.NET, RAD Editor. Also new are RAD Tab Strip 2.0, RAD Menu 3.1, and RAD Designer 1.6. Make sure you download this fresh release and check the new integration examples. For more information, go to www.telerik.com. That's T-E-L-E-R-I-K dot com. And we're back with Kimberly Tripp. You're listening to .NET Rocks, the Internet Audio Talk Show for .NET Developers. And uh, Kim, I was just about to ask you uh, about T-SQL enhancements, and maybe you can give us a link, uh, a, a, give us a link to a list of enhancements, or give us a list uh, or your favorite enhancements. What, what's going on in there? Yeah, there's there's actually a variety of different things that are happening in T-SQL that are really exciting. Um, one of the things that I, I talk a lot about at conferences and events is optimizing stored procedures and looking at stored procedures that have code that gets recompiled, uh, possibly, um, possibly excessively recompiled, but also the other side to that is code that maybe should be recompiled that isn't being recompiled enough. So like a great example is 
let's say you have a stored procedure that has a query in it that does a like, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody passes in a parameter of, I want all the customers whose name is like, and that, that's the parameter. Well, if they pass in, you know, name like Microsoft, you know, or name like a specific name, it's going to be a, a pretty specific set of rows. But they can also pass in wildcards with like, right? So they could put in, I want all the customers that have an E somewhere in the name, yeah. right? Which is a very different set of data. Well, when you send that type of a, a request into a stored procedure, the way that stored procedures work is that that statement will be optimized based on the first execution that occurs. Now, that's not the first relative to you know day one, but if that procedure is not in memory then when it gets loaded into memory, they will put a plan with it based on the parameter that was used when it was executed. But, of course, it can fall out of memory. The server can get bounced. And then the next time it gets executed, they will, again, re-optimize based on that parameter. Mm. But the, the negative, right, is that sometimes a stored procedures plan that goes into cache isn't really consistent among all the different executions. Right, You execute it one time, and maybe it should use an index. And you execute it another time, and maybe it should do a table scan. Well, again, the way that pre-compiled plans work is that on the first execution, they, they put that plan into cache, and then on subsequent executions, they reuse that plan. And while for stored procedures that return a very consistent type of data set, that's great. Yeah. It's not great if it returns very wildly different result sets on each execution. So the way that you kind of get around that today in SQL 2000 is you take that, that statement usually out of that stored procedure, put it into its own sub-procedure, mm-hmm. and you force that smaller sub-procedure to be recompiled on each execution, which means you end up with a lot more stored procedures, but whenever you break your stored procedure down into smaller chunks, you get more control over yeah. So that's the benefit, right? But it, it's more administrative work, and it, it's a little bit um, hard sometimes to even code it if it's, if it's got a lot of parameters, things like that. So in SQL 2005, um, one of the Transact SQL enhancements that they have is a new option recompile. Hmm. So if there's a statement that you want to be recompiled at essentially the statement level, and you might have this stored procedure that has 400 lines of code, you want the 400 lines of code really to be compiled and optimized, but the one statement, since it wildly varies, you mm. want it to be recompiled on each execution. Mm, yeah. So it's really cool. It's basically your whole select statement, blah, 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 and then you say option, recompile, and the recompile is in parentheses. So it's actually option, space, paren, recompile, and paren. And um, it's, a, it's a great way of kind of saying... For each execution, this statement should be recompiled. Sort of like an attribute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it very like cool. Very cool. And you can even do some other things with it, actually. You can, you can say, compile it as if this value were sent in so that, let's say, most of the time people don't use wildcards. You can essentially have the plan compiled for the non-wildcard case no matter what. Yeah. And then... Um, you know, for the, the other case, it might be slower or not as optimal, but you still get now a pre-compiled plan for the majority case. Hmm. So that's kind of cool, too. That is cool. So uh, what about this? Um, case expressions. I love case expressions. Okay. You, you guys use case expressions? I live by my case yeah. expressions. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, 
they're just really an awesome way of kind of looking at data and doing different things on the row set, um, kind of like, you know, a nested if per se. But um, case expressions get really ugly if you want to do um, a lot of different cases per se for um, all sorts of different types of columns. So what they have in, in 2005 is a pivot and an unpivot. So with pivot and unpivot, you can basically write much more simplified uh, case expressions if you want to take rows into columns and columns into rows. Yeah, I mean, the basic limit, you're talking, the cross-tabbing is the thing that I do tons of. And with a case expression, I have to write each cross-tab column out as an expression. So if mm -hmm. I want, you know, 12 months, I need to write 12 columns. I end up doing this in dynamic SQL, and it's it's really ugly. Mm. Yeah, totally. That, that's exactly. I, I was taking a sip of my soda here. Sorry. Um, but yeah, that's exactly the the benefit is the complexity of writing that case expression for twelve months, like Richard just said, is is simplified by having um, this this pivot or unpivot statement that just puts in the values that you want to pivot or unpivot, and then you can even do you know sums of those values and and so forth. So very powerful, really nice feature. Um, Kim, Kim, have you seen any real? Uh, um Good examples of using uh, extended store procedures with C Sharp or, or VB.net, and and you know, so I mean, there's been some simple examples around there, but seen anything really, be really beautiful yet? Um, there's been some custom aggregates that are kind of cool, creating your own like median function. I, you know, that's just I focus so much more on partitioning and availability that I haven't really dug my hands into some of the customer cases with CLR. Yeah. Um, you know, I've started to do some of the simple stuff, and I kind of get why and when I should or shouldn't use it, but I haven't spent as much time looking at um, a lot of the examples that customers are coming up with. But I know they are out there, and I know a lot of people have been working through complex computations. Instead of sending them to middle-tier servers to work through complex computations such that all the data has to go to the middle-tier server, yeah. be munged and sent back, they're actually writing it so it's using the server's processing power and the data doesn't have to go over the net. So there are, there are a lot of really cool applications that are being built, but, again, that's just not the thing that I've had. Right. I, I sort of see you as like the quintessential DBA who's now getting into, uh, you know, the CLR stuff just to, as a matter of necessity. Yeah, you, exactly. You know, so I, you can pretty much always take the pulse of, you know, the cutting-edge DBA who's getting into the code by, by talking to you, I think. Yeah, that, that, that's my goal, is I want to know enough about it to use it properly so that I don't shoot myself in the foot with it. I yeah. don't want to be one of those DBAs that basically says, I'm just going to turn it off because I don't want to deal with it. Right. You know? And I, I've seen, you know, like I said, some great ideas and, and focuses on that, and, and I think each case needs to be looked at, but... I'm definitely not the one that's going to turn it off. I, I, I think there's some really powerful uses of it. And if it's used properly, I think, especially because of the way that they've integrated into SQL, and it's so much safer, right, than extended stored procedures were, that it, it just makes it something that every DBA should know enough about to use properly. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of on the on the fence here about the CLR. I'm an old-time database guy, too, and I'm, I'm afraid of, of how that thing's going to be abused. I'm waiting for the, the version that's absolutely amazing where we just look at it and go, well, of course, this is the best way to do that. Right. There's an awful lot of cases where you, you're swapping <laughs> roles, and the middle tier is now being called by the database rather than the other way around. 
and that I don't see as a compelling thing. There's these few little gadgety, super uh, extended functions. Um, computing a median is a classic one. It's a pain in the butt to do in Trans SQL, so it's better done in something a little more advanced. I could see some of the XML handling might get yeah. into uh, calling uh, into the CLR for that. Sure. Well, yeah, but again, it, you know, when you invoke the SQL CLR, you don't have to go out of SQL Server to get to. I mean, maybe you're talking about accessing like a web service or something and using the SQL CLR to access the web service, and and yeah, that's really cool. But you know, it's it's actually running on the server, so if you're using um, you know, the SQL CLR and .NET frameworks, you can actually run all of that on the server side and, and, again, get the processing power of the server without having to leave the server. And that's where there's also some really big benefits. I'm not convinced that calling a web service from SQL Server is that good of an idea. I'm like, so like, like I said, I'm waiting for the, the really beautiful aha code yeah. you know, to see that case where... You know, show like, me the halo exactly. of this new Xbox. Exactly. Well, you know who I think you guys should have on then, to, if you want to get deep into the CLR, is Gert Drapers. Oh, yeah, good idea. Yeah, yeah, good idea. Awesome, yeah. I mean, a great friend of mine, um, and I, you know, that's one of the, the beauty of, of having somebody that focuses on that. If I, if I have a question, if I have concerns about a feature in terms of the SQL CLR, he would be the person I would go to. So if you guys really want to drill into it, that would be an awesome person to have on. I mean, uh, you know, like I said, I, I'm the, I'm more the server side, but um, I, I am really excited about the the SQL CLR because I do think that there are going to be some cases when used appropriately that it will have a much better way of accessing certain types of data. Uh, even data manipulation in some cases might be better if it's relational. If it's you know, like like you said, I think Richard said this. Um, if it's XML and you want to do some type of manipulation, then it's probably a lot smarter to do that potentially, with yeah. um, some call to the .NET framework, right? Yeah, I don't know there's an XSLT invocation available inside a SQL Server, so I could definitely see calling to the CLR saying, here's a glob of XML, go transform this for me and give it back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, Matt Trevers came back with a clarification for his distributed query processing question, and uh, he was referring to linked servers, Okay. So the question was, has Microsoft made any advancements in distributed query processing? And from what he understands, distributed union queries are currently executed in sequence. Are they executed in parallel in 2005, referring to linked servers? I mean, I know what he's asking, <laughs> but I don't know what anybody would I don't know. Even know like, well, I don't even know what he's asking, personally. No, I know what he's I, asking, too, but I, again, I'm... I mean, you could see why this execution would be serial for a union, because the one, one set of results generally impacts the next set of results. Well, well, they could bring them together onto one server and then do the, the get sorted algorithm if you're not doing union all. If you're doing, doing union all, it should be able to be parallelized. Right, and you just parallel, as long as the columns match up, you should be fine. Yeah, so I, I, I would say that I don't know if there's any changes in that area, but I can't imagine that being serialized, but... Yeah, but, you know, and, and talking about linked servers, the UI for SQL 2000 for linked servers was appallingly bad. So I, I would, I'm, I am looking forward to that being fixed. Hi, John Renee. How are you? Pretty good. You guys? Doing fine. So, Dev Teach this year, what, what is it all about and what can we expect? There's a lot of stuff happening at Dev Teach this year. Um, first, we have the pre-con. This year, we have uh, something really, really interesting. 
you're doing um, uh, a talk, or, um, a kind of a workshop on object-oriented programming. Mm-hmm. And on the afternoon, there's uh, Jim Duffy and Rod Paddock are doing a pre-con on uh, developing application with uh, .NET. And I also have uh, Bill Vaught, who's doing two uh, workshops. In the morning, he's doing a workshop on uh, uh, ADO.NET. Excellent. And in the afternoon, he's doing something great about uh, uh, store procedure today and tomorrow. Excellent. So it's, uh, it's really good training for everybody. And on during the conference, like last year, we have a three days full of sessions with a lots of um, different tracks. We have a, about 132 sessions. Imagine that. Wow. And um, this session are delivered in eight different rooms, so you really uh, have a big choice every day, every slot, every time slot. You have eight sessions to choose from. We have uh, over 62 uh, sessions on .NET, 39 on SQL Server. We got about 48 different speakers. Imagine that. So yeah. that's a lot of people. I, I, mean, I, I want to mention that uh, there was a great line that you had sent out in the email to people who are uh, registered. I don't know. I got a copy. I don't know who you sent it to. But it said that TechEd is sold out. So the next logical choice is DevTeach in Montreal. Absolutely. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, because you see, uh, if, if you want to go to a conference, uh, DevTeach is only eight days after TechEd, and many of the speakers at TechEd are at DevTeach. So you could imagine you could get the same session at DevTeach, and the price is very cheap. Uh, when you get to go to Montreal instead of Orlando, right? <laughs> and <laughs> Montreal in June is really nice. Uh, Beautiful. You got... You got the old port to visit. You got so many, so many things you could do. Mm-hmm. So it's a great city to uh, Orlando in June. I guess it's pretty hot there, right? Yeah, it is. So Almost unbearable. June in Montreal is like uh, winter, like California, and uh, I don't know during May. Yeah, <laughs> or, or in the so, in the winter time. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty uh, pretty nice. Plus, we're having a this year. We're also having a, a day of a postcon. We're having something that uh, not many people are doing. Jim Duffy is doing a full day on .NET Nuke. So All right. Way, That's cool. It's a great way to get um, uh, a good training. And the other thing I'm doing this year that um, that other conferences don't do is I'm going to sell day pass. Oh, wow. So if you can't really come in because you got, you're on a restricted budget, a lot of people in Canada are, uh, what you could do is you could come for two days. You could take, like, you join a, po- uh, a post-conference or a pre-conference with one day of the conference. So this way you could you could get the best out of the conference and still not have to spend a lot. So that's going to be cool. So that's going to be really a, a big event. And we're still going to have, um, I don't know if you're here, we're going to do a, a user group night with the user group that, I'm, uh, that I, that I organized we're going to have, like, a bunch of people. It's like the user group night is a bonus session for the attendee, mm. but it's also free for everybody who is local. Nicolas Landry is going to, is going to be the, um, the guy who's, who's uh, taking the question for a panel, and we're having a panel with uh, Beth Massey, uh, Joel, we're having uh, Barry, Garvin, uh, Mario, mm-hmm. 
Charles Roy and Mario Cardinal, mm-hmm. who were having like uh, like three MVP on architecture plus uh, a guy from Microsoft. Uh, so what does it cost? And and I guess devteach.com is where you sign up, right? How much yeah. is it? Devteach.com. Devteach first is stand for developers teaching. So it's easy to remember. The cost is pretty low. Uh, the regular price is a thousand hundred forty nine dollar. But if you register before uh, April um, April thirtieth, you get uh, the low price for the regular conference at uh, eight forty nine. Oh, eight forty nine in U.S. is six eighty uh, six hundred eighty six. Oh, those are Canadian dollars. Okay. Yeah, because it's Canadian dollar. It's a Canadian six hundred eighty six dollars U.S. Yeah, and when you go on the registration page, you actually see, uh, I calculate this with a um, web service every hour, you see how much it costs in U.S. Hmm. And that's an approximate number because the, there is a lot of fluctuation, but still, you could see the price is really like like changing. At every month, I'm raising my price by 100 bucks. Okay. Right now, it's 49 Oh, wow. And... In May, it's uh, 1049 Canadian. That, that's Canadian price. Right. And in June, it will be 1149 Okay. So it's like not a very expensive. And in U.S., 1149 it's uh, $928. Okay, great. Well, I can't wait to see you there June 18th through the 22nd. That's in Montreal, right downtown in the city. Absolutely. And uh, it's going to be fabulous. And uh, next year, you got to come back, uh, Richard. I will. I'm sorry I'm missing it this time around, guy. Just too many things to do at the same time. Yeah, I understand. All right, so, I'll see you so then. It was nice talking to you guys. Thanks, Sean Renee. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, well, let me shift gears here quickly. Spencer Harbour uh, from Edinburgh. He Edinburgh. says Edinburgh, yeah. I love it. I've been to Edinburgh. Great beer in Edinburgh, Scotland. Hi, guys. Love the show. Would be interested to hear an overview of the benefits of snapshot isolation and when to use it within OLTP apps. Oh, that's, that's a great question. I can definitely field that one. Um, uh, snapshot isolation. So first of all, let me, let me take a step back and, and clarify something, that snapshot isolation is actually not just one thing, but actually two. Um, in other words, there are really two forms of what's called snapshot isolation in SQL Server 2005. There's something called RCSI, which is read committed snapshot isolation, and then there is snapshot isolation. So what this really takes is a little bit of an understanding of isolation levels to, to explain. So if I can just take a second on sure. that, it right really helps. So uh, ANSI and ISO tend to, create, tend to define um, different behaviors of data based on something called an isolation level. And the isolation levels that have been defined are levels 0, 1, 2, and 3. And 0 is not SQL Server's default, and 0 is what we call read uncommitted. And what read uncommitted does is it allows a transaction to actually read uh, other transactions' uncommitted state. And that has a phenomena in it called dirty reads. And in most cases, people don't run with dirty reads because the validity of their data is, is well, it's not guaranteed to be valid, right? It's not guaranteed to have a, a consistent uh, version of the data, per se. So people use that in cases where they don't want to 
uh, create any type of, of blocking because the way that SQL Server uh, guarantees better uh, consistency of data is with locks. Okay, and this is by default in every release of SQL Server. So the default behavior is what's called read committed. And what read committed says is that when a transaction is reading information, the only information it can read is information that is in a committed and transactionally consistent state. Okay, so when you read a row, that row is not being modified by anyone else. Okay, and that's mm. kind of the, the default behavior of read committed. Mm -hmm. But there is a phenomena in read committed that can occur because of how it's implemented. When a row is read, then they release that row, and they read the next row, and they release it, and they read the next row. For a very small transaction, um, you know, the, the likelihood of the phenomena is not very high. But for a large transaction, like a, a, some transaction that's reading millions and millions of rows, the potential for you to read a row within a transaction multiple times in different states because of other transactions that uh, commit is possible, and it's called the inconsistent analysis problem. And inconsistent analysis says within a transaction, you may not read a row repeatedly. Right, so take a, a great example of this would be, let's say you have a transaction, and at the beginning of the transaction, you do a count of all of your customers who are in the United States, and you get back a count that says there are 100, right? Uh, you know, not maybe very realistic, but let's just okay. okay? So you get 100 rows in the U.S., and then you have another statement in your transaction, and you do some other stuff, and you have another statement and another statement, and at the end of your transaction, you go back and you say, tell me now how many rows I have in the United States. Well, you could have 110, you could have 80, right. right? You could have more rows, you could have less rows. The idea of holding records that you read is not really, in most cases, the wisest of ideas, right? Yeah, right. So the default behavior is, is that read locks are not held for the life of the transaction. They're released after the data has been read. But if somebody has a long-running transaction and they need to make sure that a row that they read at one point is in the same state later in their transaction, then they want to change their isolation level to the next level called repeatable read. And obviously by name, that means that any row that you read, that row will be read repeatably for the life of your transaction. Okay, so that increases the number of locks that are held. Okay? The only problem that happens there, because there is yet another phenomena, is called phantoms. And what phantoms are, imagine this, you read 100 rows the first time you read uh, country equals USA, and then you hold those 100 rows, but new rows come into USA such that when you do that query at the end of the transaction, you get 103, right? That's a phantom. Well, three phantoms to be specific. So three new rows that have come into your result set. Okay, so, so those are the four isolation levels. So that, that's kind of the basics. Does that make sense so far? And I think the important part about these isolation levels is as you go up them, you create a more contentious database. The more users you have accessing the data, the more connections you're making, the more problems you're going to have with blocking and deadlocking, the higher your, your isolation level is. Yeah, the, the default behavior in SQL Server is that all of these isolation levels are handled via locks. 
And when you are locking records, you are potentially blocking other users. And the longer you hold your locks, the longer um, your transaction is, the more potential for blocking. So that's absolutely correct. Totally agreed. Now enter the snapshot. Okay. So enter 2005. Now the first issue that I talked about is in ANSI or ISO uh, level one, read committed. And that is that a row is not guaranteed to be read repeatably in the life of the transaction. And again, that has the phenomena called the inconsistent analysis problem. Well, if you change the default behavior for your database, so this is a database level option, to what's called uh, RCSI, read committed snapshot isolation, then what ends up happening is when you read a row, if that row is either being modified or needs to be modified while you are running your statement, then you will read a version of that row that was created before the row got modified, so a transactionally consistent okay. state of that row, and that state of the row will be the only state you will see for the life of your statement. And I want to make this really clear. Statement, not transaction? Exactly. Ooh. Our, no, 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 no. Don't say ooh. This is exactly what you want, okay? Because <laughs> you're right. If you want it for the transaction, that's different. Okay. Uh, and that's the other isolation level. That's snapshot. Okay. okay. I, I mean, it's a, I said ooh because it's like that's an important distinction for the statement, not for the transaction. Totally, yeah. And that's, that, that's the critical thing to get, totally. So I thought you were saying ooh as in ew. Ooh, that's bad. No, I'm like, ah, you know, there's the key point. I wasn't sure what the difference between those two were. That's the, the very vital point there is that. In fact, most people are actually differentiating RCSI and snapshot isolation as statement level consistency with RCSI or transaction sure. level consistency. Right. Get, get that term in the main description of it so that you remember. Yeah, and that's. Well, that's what we always do in the literature and the documentation is we really try to differentiate. So, so just I, I want to summarize this, too, because it is so cool. Um, so RCSI says that you will, for the life of that statement, see that same version of the row, the version of the row that was transactionally consistent when the statement began, you will see that version for the life of your statement. So if you run the statement again... Even in the same transaction, a few minutes later, you might get a, a different, different set. Yeah, a different set. But that is what RCI is supposed to do. The main thing is that it's going to be coherent. Multiple reads of the same row are going to be coherent within a statement. Say in the case of like an aggregate, where you might actually get a change in the middle of that. It would do terrible things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's. I, I always get into this debate with um, with Oracle folks because it, it is a great debate. Um, that in, in many cases, when you do an aggregate, because that's a great example, um, if you do an aggregate over a, a changing set, so you've got an OLTP system, and you say, I want the sum of this, um, or I want the count of this, it is possible that if a row gets relocated in that set that you are reading, that you could read it twice and get an inaccurate sum or count. Absolutely. You know, to, to take a step back, though, the likelihood of that in many cases can be reduced by having more efficient base table structures. Um, so like the, the decision that I make to cluster a table on a, a key value that doesn't change, 
means that that record isn't likely to move. And if a record isn't likely to move, I'm not as likely to read it multiple times when reading a large aggregate because most large aggregates are done through some form of scanning. And unless a row gets relocated, I'm not going to see it again. No, you're only, it makes it, it, aggregates are computed in a single pass, in theory. So I said that one of the, the biggest things that I get into debates of with, with Oracle folks is that, you know, they, in their implementation of read committed, don't have the inconsistent analysis problem. Even though the, the ANSI and ISO standard actually defines read committed to have inconsistent analysis, the way that they've implemented it, they don't. And again, with the right types of structures in SQL Server, you can significantly reduce the phenomena um, you know, in and of itself. But with SQL 2005 implementing RCSI, you can get the same type of behavior that you get in Oracle. So my key point there is if you, if you want to test and or migrate uh, applications, the, the behavioral difference is, is now gone really in level one in read committed. So that's really cool. So RCSI is, is the most comparable behaviorally with um, what some other vendors, i.e. Oracle, do. So it's, it's a great way of, of looking at and testing apps and so forth. And then that, like I said, is only at the statement level. The, if you want to see 100 rows of USA at the beginning of a transaction and you want to do a whole bunch of other things and you only want to see those 100 rows uh, at the end of your transaction as well, in a multi-statement transaction, then you don't want RCSI because RCSI is statement level. That's when you go to snapshot isolation, and snapshot isolation is transaction level. So would I apply snapshot isolation at the beginning of my stored procedure, or do I have to apply it at the beginning of the connection, or is it a database setting? You would think that I... I prompted you for that one, Richard, because that's... <laughs> Here I am walking right into it. Yeah, I, that was exactly what I wanted to do next, was that the implementation of it is different. So for RCSI, you turn on a database setting, and you do absolutely nothing else. The behavior just changes, okay? Really? So it's just a setting of the database, and you never think about it again. All long-running, multi-statement trans, uh, statements bound in a transaction are going to be snapshotted. All statement-level... Um, all statement-level transactions will be consistent, yes. So, I mean, mm. effectively, when you go to snapshot isolation, you've got RCSI as well. No, 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 no. Okay, sorry. Let, let, let me step back for a second. I'm just doing RCSI. Okay. So statement-level consistency. You basically turn it on, and you walk away. And you're done. Every, and, and you're done. And every statement will be consistent at the time the statement started. Right. And they managed not to name it, make me work like Oracle. And they, they managed to name it, make me work like, or, yeah, <laughs> not name it that. Um, and, and, you know, again, it just happens to be that the implementation in the, the different products has varied over the years. You know, not that one is better than the other. I, I mean, I, I, really, I, I, I really can't say the, that I believe that one way is better than the other. But, you know, if you do want to port an application, you obviously want the same behavior. So, that would give you the same behavior. So I, th I think that's cool for people that might want to try things out and, and see how they run. Um, so that's, that's RCSI. You turn it on, you run your statements unchanged, and everything just runs at a statement-level read-consistent state. Awesome. So if you want to invoke transaction-level consistency, where you see, like imagine wanting to run five different long-running complex queries 
but you want all of them to assess their aggregate sums, mins, maxes on the same version of the data. You want transaction-level consistency. Now, this is more expensive, right, because it's going to have to keep row versions around longer. But yes. that, yeah, so, so that's the negative. But the positive side is that what you do there is you turn on a different database option, and when you want to run a transaction with snapshot, you actually say set transaction isolation level snapshot, begin your tran, do all five of your statements, for example, and they will run with the same version for the entire life of that transaction, commit, and when it commits, in many cases, that's when they can get rid of those versions. Then it drops the snapshot. Now, when it's creating a snapshot, is it creating the whole table? Or is it literally as it executes, as it, as it reads individual rows, it's making copies of them on the fly? Great question. So snapshot isolation is row versioning. In fact, the, the term mm. that mostly is used is, wow. is row-level versioning, RLV, row-level versioning. Right. Wow. So it's always at the row level. There's a little bit of overhead that needs to be with each row to support it. No doubt. Row, yeah, your rows are going to be a little bit wider, but it's only 14 bytes. Um, you know, and I, I could do some upgrade issues related to that. But it, it basically you need 14 extra bytes per row, and any time a row gets modified, essentially that version gets created in TempDB with a copy-on-write type of technology, meaning you go to update it, and they take the before image of the row, and on the right, they copy that before image over to TempDB. So if anybody needs it, they there it is transaction. Yeah, they will have it. There it is. And you could get in, couldn't you get in a situation where you have multiple versions of the same row just by the or the timing of the execution of the queries? Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, with row level versioning, you can end up with what's called a version chain, and you might have multiple versions. Again, the number of versions you have to keep is going to be based a lot on the length of your transactions, and whether or not you're going for statement level or transaction level. Right. You know, statement level, they won't have to necessarily be around as long. But transaction level, you're going to keep a lot more versions and possibly multiple versions of rows around. So uh, transaction level is more expensive in terms of TempDB. Uh, RCSI is less expensive. Yeah. No, great question. I mean, that's, that's absolutely a perfect question to ask for that. And, and Carl, I, I, I'm pretty much done unless Carl, uh, Richard has another one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I was holding my breath for that. All the... <sighs> Let's just recap that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that, please? I, I dropped my pen. I was. I just wanted to make some notes. What did you say after yeah. transaction? Hey, well, I you know, marriage proposal online. Nice. <laughs> You know that you don't hear me saying much because I mean this is just way out of my league of experience, and so I'm really enjoying listening to you two guys and knowing that there are a lot of listeners out there who actually are following you and go and and minds being blown. So, so there you go. <laughs> That's all I got to say, really. I mean, what more can you say? Yeah, uh, it, it's a uh, it's it's a really great feature. It's really interesting. And I, I did write about a 60-page white paper on it, and it's, it, there's a link off my homepage. It's on MSDN as well, and um, we probably will be updating it for Beta 3 and, of course, RTM. But um, it, it's, it's a great feature. And, and actually, there's somebody that made a comment about Snapshot of a Mirror, 
And I, I have to point something out. If, if, if you, Do we need to take a break, or can I point something else out? Nah, just go ahead. We're screwed anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Brains are dead. We don't care. Um, so it, so this, this term snapshot isolation and the, the term snapshot in general, like just taking a step back, the, the concept of a snapshot is that you, you have a, a point-in-time version of something, right? right? That's just the general definition of snapshot. The negative that I see with, with SQL Server 2005, and it's, it's not a real big negative, it's just a terminology negative. The, the same term, because the, the concept is the same, there are, are snapshots taken of different things in SQL Server. So the term is actually used in a whole bunch of places, but not every one of those features uses the same underlying mechanism. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. Yeah, so, so snapshot isolation uses row-level versioning in what's called the version store in TempDB. But database snapshots, okay, so database snapshots are actually using NTFS sparse files. Hmm. And database snapshots are a feature that allows you to take a point-in-time image of the entire database, but it only takes a second or two to do it. Does it do a difference kind of thing? No, it's, it's even cooler than that. It's, it's, it is, it's just an amazing thing. They, they, they are leveraging NTFS sparse files. So, like, if you say, I want a database snapshot of database X, they literally go out and create NTFS sparse files for that entire database, which are basically files that have nothing in them. So they're kind of hmm. uh, files that are waiting for the changes. So as pages get changed, they get put into the sparse file. Again, a very similar copy-on-write technology, but it's done at the OS level. Yeah, so rather wow. than snapshot and making a copy of the database, they leave the database alone so it's the snapshot and keep a oh, log of oh, all the okay. subsequent changes so that those that aren't dealing with the snapshot view through the sparse file. Well, that's pretty, exactly. pretty awesome. Exactly, and it's, it's very lightweight, and the, the best part about it is, if any of you guys have ever had somebody drop a table, like in a database? No. Yeah, I know. Go figure, right? <laughs> it, it's really hard to recover from uh, some type of a human error you know, while the database is live. If, if something happens where somebody deletes a lot of rows, there's no quick you know, like undo type of thing. Right. And... What you usually have to do is take backups, restore them to an alternate location, which takes time. You then recover as close to the, the time of the disaster, but obviously not including, <laughs> and you get that state of the data, and then you might manually merge it back in. And again, this is all taking time. And it's all very grubby. You're never are sure you ever did it right in the end. Yeah, it's, it can mm. be a real nightmare. So if you have a database snapshot... Um, it's already going to be there and ready for you so that if you want to get to an earlier state of the data, you can actually query the snapshot as if it were a database. Right. So it's, it's, just, it's a great way of having kind of a version of your database at a point in time that's available. If somebody whacks a table, you can go back to that and literally just select it back into the production database and the amount of time, uh, lapse time is, is, is small. And it gives you a read-only version of the database that you can actually use for reporting if people want a point-in-time version to report against. So you might, if you want transaction-level consistency, 
you might actually just go with a database snapshot and run your reports against it, and then you don't have to have any of the, the row versions created. Hmm. You just have the overhead of the snapshot. Again, the row versions would be at the point in time the transaction started, whereas database snapshots are at the time the snapshot was taken. So there's, there's pros and cons, certainly, but there's just some great uses for some of these new features. And I, that's what's keeping me so excited about this product is not only are there these, these you know, ways to keep data more available, but there's ways to keep the data less blocked. Mm. There's ways to get different types of you know, result sets to whatever type, point-in-time consistency you want. Um, and that's why it, it, you know, jack-of-all-trades, master of some is, is really what I think is, is important. Know the, the whole spectrum of what's available. Know the pros and cons. You don't have to know every nitty-gritty implementation um, detail. But then when you want to use the feature, then get to know the implementation details. You know? Well, I got a, another question from the chat room. And uh, hopefully it won't take as long as the last one, but uh, it should be a pretty simple one. <laughs> uh, it's not an open-ended question, let's put it that way. Uh, from Aaron in Australia. And he asks, will SQL ever support active slash active for the one instance of a DB? Oh, I see. He's talking about clustering. Yeah, okay. It, I always try to get away from the terms active, active, because they're so confusing. Um, yeah, what is that? What does that mean? Okay. Yeah, so, so SQL Server back in 2000 tried to get people to use the term multi-instance clusters, okay, which basically means you have, let's say, two nodes, which are two servers that have a shared disk array in common, and how it works today, which I, I totally understand the question, but let me get to the, the basics because I have a feeling they're going to say, oh, my God, she didn't understand my question. But okay. um, if you have two nodes in a two-node cluster... The way that clusters work today is that only one node can have active ownership of the disk resources related to a given database. And if that server crashes, then the cluster's job is to fail over to the other server, take ownership of the database, and bring it online. Okay? So that is what most people think of as a two-node cluster in an active-passive configuration, where one node is active, it owns the disk resources, and the other node's just waiting for failure. Okay? Right. Now, you can run two instances of SQL Server, two different instances of SQL Server, essentially two virtual servers, where one is running on one node and has access to some drives, and another is active on the second node and has access to different drives. So they're two totally different instances of SQL Server. And, of course, again, if one of the nodes dies, the other server would then have to run both instances. Right. So you're still only technically using 50% of your resources because you have to leave 50% available. I mean, not really, because everything could be in use. I mean, each of those two nodes is now running two copies of SQL Server. But one of the copies is sitting there waiting for something to happen. So it's really not consuming a whole lot in the way of resources. Certainly, you know. I realize, but in SQL 2000, if certain resources, specifically memory, aren't available at the time of a failover, you might not be able to fail over. Right, yeah. You, you, you do have to have enough space for, for everything. Yeah, exactly. So you and, it, and the point is you don't want it, when it, one of the modes does fail, and the machine, and now the two instances of SQL Server both have to run at the same time running both 
databases, you need to have enough resources they still run and don't fail, and you have a compound failure. Exactly. So now the next question, which is really the question that, that you had asked, Carl, or, or that the, the um, Australian had asked, right, the Aussie. Aaron, yeah. Um, I love Oz, by the way. Um, but they had asked, is there any way to have a database and have both nodes actively using it? And, and the answer there is no, okay? I mean, simply put, it's no. And that's really a good thing. Yeah, and, and, and it, it could lead to potentially, if it weren't implemented right, of course, things like corruption and so forth. But um, the idea of being able to distribute a load for one database across multiple servers, I see exactly what they're saying, is something that Microsoft you know, has, has looked at and, and thought about, and I, I know they're, they're still thinking about it and so forth, but there isn't a feature in Yukon that allows you to do that. So, I mean, I guess I couldn't right. have said that, but I needed to clarify the active, active thing. I, there's a good point on the chat. Um, the, the, the other term that's often used for the type of clustering that SQL Server uses is called shared nothing clusters, meaning that the, the two nodes don't share anything. It is a shared disk array, but only one of the nodes has actual ownership of the resource. I know what I was thinking of that got away from me. The other way you share load across multiple machines rather than trying to go this active-active is with federated servers, that you split the data onto separate machines. And I've set up systems like that that were geographically distributed. So we had servers in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in New York. Most people worked on the local data in their local office, but we were still able to query across all of the servers to do uh, comprehensive reporting. Exactly, and that and that a server federation and using partition, distributed partition views is definitely something you can look at. But it's not it's not a single database with multiple servers accessing it. It's separate databases where each database, like you said, has a subset of the data of the data whole. Yes, exactly, exactly. So. Okay, well, one last question here from Matt Trevers again. Is the row limitation for Varchar still 8080? It, it's actually 8060, but um, okay. um, <laughs> kind of, uh, and, and no. Actually, okay, no. So I, I'll start by saying no. Um, you can have a row that is effectively more than the maximum today, which is, is 8060, and the way that that happens is if you have two let's say Varchar 2000s, um, or, or let's even say two Varchar 6000s, okay, and they put 5,000 characters in each, then the one of them will spill over to what's called a row overflow, okay? Hmm. And effectively, the row can be wider. But, but before I say that, okay, before I, well, I've already said it. But <laughs> before you grok that. Yeah, I know. Before everybody goes, hip, hip, hooray, I can have rows that are greater than 8060. I want to take a step back to something that I have highly recommended, and it's called vertical partitioning. And the idea is this. If you have a whole bunch of attributes you want to store about an entity, you know, you have a customer and you have 25 different things you want to track, you always want to put all 25 things into one table. Just because the row size can support it, doesn't really mean that it's always a good idea. Like a great example is this. You've got three columns that you constantly scan because you're doing lists of their addresses and phone numbers, and you're, you're always doing range queries. And then you've got 
five or six columns that are constantly getting updated and getting looked up, so you're doing a lot of point queries. And then you've got five or six columns that you rarely ever reference, but you do need to store them, right? Instead of putting them in one table, just because the table can store them all in one table, why not consider maybe two tables or three tables so that you end up with three tables of much narrower row sizes. When you have narrower rows, you fit more rows on a page. So when you then have to scan data, you can scan more rows on one page and have fewer pages to store the table. I do need to take a breath. So you have fewer pages to store the table. So when you scan it, you put fewer pages into memory. And some of that stuff that you rarely ever reference just stays on disk most of the time, not burdening cash when it doesn't need to be there. I think there's also a, a relationship with the significance and change rate of data, too. You often find stuff like notes fields that are big or, or other texts like that, or even addresses, should be isolated from the rest of the data because it doesn't change that often, and it's big and clunky compared to all the rest of the data you're looking at all the time. So, yeah, I, I agreed. I mean, and, and not only that, but there could be multiple different types of addresses, and maybe you want to have address and address type as different rows. And a lot of people start saying, oh, but then I have to do a lot of joins. Joins are your friend. Yeah, if, if joins have the proper indexes, Joins can be done really efficiently. Yeah. Problem is, is a lot of people miss some of the basics in terms of indexing, and then when they do those large complex joins, it is more expensive. Yes. So, yes. And, and the question there, do all the tables have the primary key? Yes, that's true. Yeah. So all the tables would have the primary key in them, and you'd effectively have a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one relationship as, as questioned there. And the other, the other part that's kind of interesting is, you might have a one-to-one-to-many -one in some cases, depending on how you design it. But again, you, you don't have to load all that stuff in the cache when you don't need it there. So as exciting as it is to have row sizes that are wider, and it is a great question because there's definitely a need, just watch your design. That's, that's really the only thing. I, I, that's a feature I think is possibly going to be misused. Well, Kim, uh, I, I hate to do this to you, but we've been going for a, a real long time, and people's iPods are going to explode if we let you go any further. <laughs> so I'm going to finish this up and just by saying well, this has just been truly amazing, and I know this, a lot of our listeners feel the same way uh, uh, listening to you talk. We could just listen all day. And uh, let me just bring it down with a question I like to ask all my guests at the end of the show. What's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately? Oh, my goodness. The coolest thing I've downloaded lately. Wow. Um, you're going to hate me, but IDW14, April CTP for SQL Server. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least you didn't say MSN Desktop Search. Right. <laughs> no, okay. No, oh, I, I've got something that's cool, but it's not the last thing I've downloaded. The... Um, the voice control for my cell phone so that I can click a button, say, call Carl Franklin Mobile. Which one did you get? Because <laughs> nice. there's two of them. I got the, I got the Microsoft Mobile um, download. I've, I've, the, the phone that I've got is the Siemens SX66, which is a pocket PC cell phone. I right. absolutely love it. Here, wait, I, I've got a... I, I went out and got one after you showed me yours. So. Oh, man, it rocks, doesn't it? I have a Samsung, like but it's the same idea. Yeah, and so I think we, we downloaded the same thing. Although okay. I'm not, it doesn't do a great job with recognizing my voice for some reason. Oh, man. It, okay, so watch this. Here we go. Call Richard Campbell home. 
Oh wait, I sorry, my voice. I turned my phone off, so sorry. There's no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but no, it's just for me. I don't have any problem with it. I can literally. Here we go. Call Richard Campbell home. No home number. Oh. No home number. No, I'll give you my home number later, Kim. It, no, no, and it said call. Oh, you guys should have heard it. Wait. So no. I, I sort of say no home number. It, what it said the first time was. No home number for Richard. Call Richard Campbell Mobile. Nice. All I would have had to say was yes, and it yeah. would have called you. Yeah, I've, that's excellent. It is very it, cool. It, it is. It's really excellent. And for me, since it's Pocket PC, you know, instead of getting the stylus out and clicking, you know, contacts, see for Campbell, scrolling through the list to find Richard, to then click yeah. on you and click on. Now I just click on this and say, call Richard Campbell home. And. And it basically dials you, and I do nothing. I mean, it's just awesome. So nice. I love yep. it. Thirty nine ninety five, and it's it's my favorite little. Thirty nine ninety five to have a feature that self regular cell phones have had for two years. Well, yeah, but, <laughs> but they made it smart, as smart as they can make. But it's not a pocket PC. I know it's very cool. And it's, it's the first pocket PC I've ever owned because I didn't want to own one until I could have one device for both. All right, Kim, we're going to get you on the schedule for the next available show, which is like uh, August or September or something. So, I'll so, be there. I'll, I'll do it, you guys. That'd excellent. Cool. I, I love this. This is fun. Yeah, we loved it, too. Is, are there any last-minute words of wisdom you want to impart on our listeners? Just, just you know, jack-of-all-trades, master of some. Find, find out about all the features. Know what they are in general. And then when something really looks interesting... Learn it as, as best you can so that you implement it properly. And where are you going to be appearing next? I'm in Istanbul, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then I head to Copenhagen for a three-day class on high availability with SQL 2005. And then I head to London for a long weekend. I'm going to go see Brooke Shields on stage for Chicago. While I'm- <laughs> wow. And then I head to Munich for PASS. So I'm actually on the road for three weeks starting tomorrow. Okay. When are you back in the States at any kind of uh, tech ed, or I guess we can, we can assume? Yeah, my next public event in the U.S. is Tech Ed U.S., yeah. And I've got, um, boy, I think I've got four sessions, a pre-conference, the Women in Technology panel, and I'll be at the Ask the Experts booth a couple of times as well. All right, well, do me a favor. The next time you're on the show, just, uh, you know, crank up the techno a bit, because it's, you weren't very technical this time, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, we, we'd really appreciate it if you if you'd provide a little more substance to what you're talking about. It's a little, it's getting a little fluffy. No, I'm sorry. It's happening in my old age. All right. Well, listen. On behalf of myself, Jeff Maciolik out there in the sound room, Richard Campbell, on uh, out in Vancouver, British Columbia. All the listeners in the chat room, all the listeners who download and podcast and listen to us week after week. Kimberly, thank you very much thank again you. for coming on .NET Rocks and Wow. I'm going to call that medical team to stuff my brain back in my head. Time, boy, life is hard.